0: You know, I think if you listen to modern day marketing or if you listen to kind of the mantras we live by, it's easy to believe that we are the center of the universe. Not just Dallas, not just St. Michael, but humans, we're the center of everything that happens. In a sense, like that imagery in the Bible, the earth is our footstool to do as we please. But the psalmist reminds us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It may seem so obvious, it may seem so simple, but if we understood the degree to which this earth is not ours, but God's, and that we are stewards of this gift, it would change everything about how we live. I suggest that the center of Judeo-Christian belief is that God has planted us on this earth to reveal God's purpose. Think about that. I was at an event last night and it was on behalf of impoverished children and the person leading that charity said, you wouldn't believe the degree to which the high schoolers I work with do not have a sense of purpose. And I'm not just talking ESD or Highland Park. I'm talking the schools in this area. Many of the children do not understand why they're here what their purpose is, and this particular organization kind of has subtle Christianity, basically pulls out kingdom values without being overly explicit and reminds them that they have a purpose. And so I would ask you to think today, what is your purpose? One of the things is to reveal God's purpose here on earth. And the hallmark of this loving relationship is that God calls and calls and calls, reminds us, of our heavenly home, reminds us of our family, but we get to choose how we will respond. And I talked about this in a class I did a few weeks ago. God never demands. God always invites. And then the question is, how will we respond? And so you may not realize that God is nudging you or calling you to deepen that sense of love, and you get to decide how you will respond to that. In the Bible, they talk about it as God singing a love song. And if there was an arc that went across the Bible that I could paint the picture for you, it is God's love for the earth and the song that God sings to God's people. And then the question is, band, where are you? Do we pick up the tune, right? Do we hear that song and do we respond in that echoing of love? That's what our purpose is. That's what we're about. So as you know, you've learned it from the Bible, you heard it in today's lesson, Israel is God's beloved. All the nations of the earth are called by God, but Israel is set apart for a particular purpose to model something to the nations of the earth so that the whole family of God can be one. So God's call is often distinctive, but it's not exclusive. It's not only Israel. It's just that Israel has a particular purpose and are meant to live in a particular way to reveal something to the nations around. So Israel is God's beloved. We are God's beloved. How do we respond to that love? So in today's, these passages that we have in Isaiah and in Matthew are really important stories of God's love song. And I think if we forget that basis of love, if we forget that God pursues us, To try to get us to respond, then we'll misread the stories. Because the stories can become about anger or letting the vineyard rot uh, or, you know, all of that. That's not actually the point. The point is God is calling us into love. And what we see in these stories are ways that we typically respond, kind of in ignorance to God's love. So we know what the theme is of Isaiah because it begins this way: Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Now what you should know is this exactly matches the Song of Solomon. And when they talk about the two lovers, there's the sense in which um, one is a vineyard and and all of that. And so when the people of Israel would have heard Isaiah, they would have heard the echoes of Song of Solomon. And so Isaiah is taking that familiar phrase, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. And they probably would have settled back for kind of a nice warm um, story about love. But it does turn quickly and which I'll get to in a minute. So the lesson begins positively. And you remember the Lord plants a vineyard, tends it with care. And the story goes to say all the steps that God took. He dug the soil, cleared it of stones, plants the very best vines. That's the care with which God is approaching Israel. He builds a watchtower in its midst. He digs, he hews out a wine vat for the expected yield. You can feel this sense of excitement of what God has built. And if you've ever been a gardener, which I've done a very tiny bit, you know the time and the energy and the love that it takes to carve out a place for crop and beauty. It is not easy. It doesn't happen by itself. So Israel, I want you to see as God's pleasant planting, God invests the very best into this community and expects the people to yield good fruit. They will be a sign of God's love to the nations. So before we get into what happens, I want to stay there for a minute. Because if that's true of Israel, if God prepares the garden of Israel in that way, are we not God's planting as well? St. Michael, this church, was not planted by us. It will not be harvested by us. We are stewards. We are tenants, if you will, for God's planting. This is God's work, what happens at St. Michael. And so in a sense, Chris often describes it as a relay race. Someone is carrying the baton and passes it on. We take it and take it to the next one. And I want you to have that image as we're in the stewardship season, as we have an annual campaign, that in a sense, we're just doing our part for this moment so that when we hand off that baton, we leave it better than we found it. St. Michael's meant to be a source of light and safety for those around us, not just those in the community, but those outside. And uh, I saw a a way, I know a lot of things about St. Michael. I, I know a lot of our ministries. I know a lot of our missions. But there was one I didn't know about, which began in 1960, early 60s. Some of you know the lore of Father Westerfer. And he was a priest here. And one of the things Father Westerfer loved was golf. And so what did he do? He would take his friends and go golfing. But I mean, this was serious. I mean, they played a lot, and they were good. And at the end of the day, they would put a hat around, and they would collect money, a kitty, from everyone who played, and they would put it to good use. So it just was this priest doing something he loved with the people he loved, and then deploying that for good use in the community. Well, that became the Westerford Golf Tournament, which is the earliest golf tournament in the Dallas-Fort Worth area by your very own Father Westerford at St. Michael. And... Over time, there's now. This is now going to be the 58th one on Monday. It's always on Columbus Day, Bankers' Holiday. So they go out and they play golf, um, and it's fun. It's fellowship. They collect the proceeds. Um, and this year it's going to be benefiting, yes, Youth Equipped to Succeed. That was the event that I was at last night. And to their credit, this event is now hosted by the Preston Hollow uh, Rotary Club, but they wanted to remember their roots. They wanted to remember where they came from, so they came to St. Michael and made a video with the stained glass window, and they had people in the tournament talking about how it came to be. And so I came just to represent St. Michael, to in a sense remind them of that link with our church. It was very powerful. There's a prayer that Father Westerfer wrote in honor of this tournament in a speech he gave. And I wanna read it to you. I wanna take a minute to read it to you. It is delightful. And part of what I want you to listen for is the way that Father Westerfer takes something so common, something so much part of your lives. I am not a golfer, but I know many of you are. Listen how he takes the game of golf and raises it to a higher purpose. Oh God, in the game of life, you know that though most of us are duffers, we all aspire to be champions with many birdies or eagles. Help us, we pray, to be grateful for the course, including both the fairways and the rough. Thank you for those who have made it possible for us to tee off. Thank you for the thrill of a solid soaring drive, the challenge of the dogleg, the trial of the trap, the discipline of the water hazard, the beauty of a cloudless day, and the exquisite misery of rain and cold. Thank you, O God, for the ma- Thank you, o God our master and pro, who shows us how to get the right grip on life, to slow down in our backswing, to correct our crazy hooks and slices, to keep our heads down in humility and to follow through in self-control. May he teach us also to be good sports who will accept the rub of the green, the penalty for being out of bounds, the reality of lost balls and the relevancy of par, the dangers of the 19th hole. And Lord, when our last putt is dropped into the cup of the last open, The light of our last day has faded into the darkness of death, though our trophies be few, our handicaps still too high, and the hole in one still only a dream. May we be able to turn into you, our tournament director at the great clubhouse, an honest scorecard. In the name of the Lord, we pray. Amen. That may seem like, oh, isn't that sweet? But look what he did. He took the game of golf. And he elevated in a way to say, this is the journey we're on. These are the dangers we face. These are the ways we strive to be the best. And I love how this priest, this local priest in his community, um, built a thing that stands to this day. This is just one example of the ways that St. Michael has been a force for good in the community. You know them. Obvious examples include the St. Michael Woman's Exchange, Meals on Wheels, Jubilee Park and Community Center, Amistad, on and on. It's you going out as a pleasant planting of the Lord and in a sense extending that to others. God has planted you in Dallas. You have borne good fruit. But as the story today shows us, a strong harvest is not always a given. In the story from Isaiah, the love story takes a very sorrowful turn. God planted good grapes, but the vineyards yield wild grapes which suggests that they're from some other source. The love song that began so hopefully hits a discordant note. In a sense, Israel says no to God, no to justice and mercy, no to caring for the widow and the orphan, no to rest on Sabbath. And as a consequence, God's pleasant planting is torn down. It becomes a wasteland. Animals eat the fruit, thorns choke the vine. It's an image of total and complete destruction. I read this passage to my wife Rachel last night and after a moment of silence she said that's so sad. That's the essence. It's so sad that in a sense God who poured God's self into that vineyard would have that response. It's heartbreaking." The lesson from Matthew, which I won't talk about in depth, is just simply a variation on a theme. Jesus is taking that familiar story from Isaiah, and now he's turning it to a new purpose. He thinks of the times, the Romans, the business practices. An owner had a vineyard, and he leased it out to some uh, tenants and went away and expected to come back and be able to get his share of the profits, the rent. Some of you here know what that's like. That's how it works. What happens? The tenants want it for themselves, And when he sends his slaves to collect the rent, they beat them, they cast them out. And the owner, leaning into relationship, says, well, I'll send my son. Maybe if I send my son, they'll listen to him. But in fact, we know what happens. They kill the son, thinking they can have the vineyard for themselves. And then Jesus asks the people there around him, what do you think the owner will do with those tenants? And everybody, you know, they'll kill those miserable wretches. And then Jesus just holds up a mirror and says, look at the ways that I have come to you, that I have sung to you, that I have appealed to you, and you have turned a deaf ear to me. And they realized they were struck to the heart, and they actually wanted to arrest him because they couldn't bear the message. Friends, we are God's pleasant planting. God expects harvest from us, and God expects us to return a share of the harvest. When we talk about stewardship, when we talk about our capital campaign and our annual stewardship campaign, we are not just talking about what the church needs, although that is real. We are talking about what we need, what you and I need to learn about our place in the world. And by giving a share of what we have, we're basically acknowledging, but for a season, you know, the flower fades. And so we are invited to, in this moment, maybe more than the last 75 years, to really think about what can we give, what can we do to honor that sense of stewardship? How can we prepare this church for what's to follow and for the generations to follow? So, you know, in these kinds of things, and when you hear this appeal being made, it's easy to turn off. But I would ask you to, when you open that packet for the campaign, or when the church calls you and says, will you meet with Chris? Don't just hear that as, an obligation, hear it as God's love song, inviting you to participate in that deeper relationship, to change you and to change the community. Amen.